And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. It is Thursday, the last day of the week for this particular show. Welcome, everyone. We are live from the bunker. That is the super secret underground bunker here at World Headquarters. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor-in-chief here at Sci-Fi for Me. Executive producer, program manager, station manager, whatever you want to, whatever you want to add to that list of labels 30 years in the media which means i kind of maybe i'm getting the hang of this a little bit although i'm looking at the control panel for the facebook broadcast and it says sorry we're having trouble playing this video facebook has been a little glitchy this week uh, with regard to our broadcasts and my ability to post links to our page a little frustrating the live chat is open if you want to join in the conversation we don't have a guest today we're going to talk about something that was over at tour.com we'll get there in a minute if you are watching or listening in playback mode uh, we do welcome your feedback as well. You can leave a comment or you can send us an email live from the bunker at sci fi for me.com. We do not have a phone number. So uh, there is that. If anybody is watching over on Facebook, if you want to kind of give me a shout out and let me know if this thing's actually working or not, because maybe I don't know if I reload the page, what will that do? All right, it looks like we're looks like it's kind of working. I don't know. Technology, ladies and gentlemen, it is our friend or something. I for one will welcome our Google overlords. I mentioned we're broadcasting both on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, we also have our videos going over to BitChute, uh, if anybody is interested in an alternative there. Uh, and oddly enough, our video uploads to BitChute, originally they were, con they were connected uh, our our YouTube channel, our, our little ID thingamabobber widget, uh, had connected the two accounts. The YouTube videos, whenever we put something on there, it would automatically port over to BitChute. And it doesn't look like that's the case now, so we're having to upload manually. And it's interesting that the BitChute play, playback, uh, the, the, the statistics that I'm looking there... Uh, the performance of those videos is better than anything we're doing over on YouTube, which I find really interesting, given that we have not we have not promoted our BitChute 
content anywhere at all, really, to speak of. So uh, I find it interesting that our, our BitChute content is getting more attention than our YouTube content, which is actually where it lives. So <laughs> it's... It is one of those things. Uh, we'll have to we'll have to dig into the analytics of it and find out what exactly is going on there. But uh, anywho, that's that's the way things are here. It's the way it is. I don't know. Sci-fi snob, yes, uh, jiggling it sometimes works. I do have a couple of cables that. Uh, need that remedy every now and again. Plus, we also have uh, the the occasional reboot, automatic reboot, the brand new the brand new tower, folks. The brand new tower occasionally will sit there and go, "Oh, you plugged in a camera. I can't. I gotta have a blue screen. I gotta restart." It is the buggiest operating system Windows Ten is. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this before. I think I have. I hate Windows 10. Just to be clear, I hate Windows 10. It is buggy. It is glitchy. It doesn't like some of the stuff that I'm trying to get it to do. My old tower worked just fine. It was just old. It was tired. Every now and again, it needed a restart because it was just like, I've done too much today. This one. <laughs> All right. So let's get into this. Uh, real quick, mention the uh, Superhero Stuff discount that we've got over there negotiated at SuperheroStuff.com where you can get 10% off your order when you use the promo code SCIFIFORME10. That will get you 10% off. It can be used in combination with other offers and sales, depending on the offer and sales. It's not, uh, it's not across the board you can use in combination. It just depends. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, okay. Savage uh, Snob says the last chat was advice if my wife is losing interest in me. I, my wife so far, Mrs. Boss is fine. Um, I don't know that she's losing interest yet. Um, we might revisit that after I get finished painting the living room, depending on how long that takes. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, coming up this uh, this week, uh, we've got a new Ranker Pit. I do believe we're going to do a Ranker Pit on uh, Friday night. Let me find that thing. So Friday night at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, we will have a new discussion about the latest Star Wars stuff. More than likely, we will be talking about The Mandalorian for the most part. We may touch on a couple of other things that have come across the desk this week. And then, of course, we have uh, Good Morning Multiverse on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central. We are thinking about moving that back to its original time, but we haven't decided that yet, so stay tuned. Uh, we're on all the social media, of course. And we might... I'm, I'm checking with Mr. Harvey. We might have... 
a new tartar sauce uh, this week, but I'm not sure yet. I'm waiting to hear back from him on that. And, uh, okay, so far I have not. Okay, so that's that's where we are so far. So let's get into this for a, a little bit. It's not going to be something that's very, very deep, but I ran across this Dayton Ward. Uh, posted a link to this, drew my attention to it uh, uh, when he posted it over on his Facebook account. This is an article on Tor.com from earlier this week. It's a it's an article. It's an essay think piece by Eric Pisola, and I'm hoping I'm I'm pronouncing that right. Oh, by the way, Mrs. Mrs. Boss has just walked back into the studio. Um, uh, are are we okay as far as your level of interest in Mr. Boss so far? In just being Mr. and Mrs. Boss. You're still okay? You're still good? Oh, you're going to... There, but... Am I on? Yeah, you're on. Well... <coughs> what's the question again, one more time? <laughs> uh, Am I still interested in you? Well, we were talking about, we were talking about the fact that, that we were having some technology issues. I was talking about the, the reboot issues that this tower has. Sci-Fi Snobs to try jiggling it, and he actually meant in case you started to lose interest in me. That was advice. That was that was Sci-Fi Snobs marital advice that I would try jiggling it. So I I'm I'm of the opinion that you haven't lost interest yet in being Mrs. Boss, but it might change after we finish painting the living room. Well, no, it's been okay painting the living room right now, and I mean, you still cook really well, and yeah. I still like your dog, but I can, in the future, take his advice, and if something I feel doesn't work, I can just come over and <laughs> jiggle you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. All right, so here we go. This article on tour.com. Uh, it is, that is, that is, these are the jokes, folks. That's what you're, uh, if everything, okay, uh, Sci-Fi Snob says, if everything is okay, then make sure you don't jiggle it. I ruined the joke with my poor delivery and timing. That is the story of my life. <laughs> All right, so this article we hear from Eric Pozzola, Fandom and the Future of Star Trek. <laughs> now somebody shows up? <laughs> All right. Uh, okay, uh, the the uh, we have apparently a door uh, a, a delivery at the at the at the dock. Okay, so fandom and the future of Star Trek. This article on Tor.com from Eric Pesola uh, from November tenth. This would be from Tuesday, and it goes through talking about the franchise overall and the comparison that people are making between. New Trek, and he's defining New Trek as uh, uh, the Kelvin timeline and all of the new stuff, the the Kurtzman stuff over on CBS All Access. So Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks, in addition to the movies that J.J. Abrams have made, has made. And doing some comparisons and looking at some of the different complaints, some of the more common complaints about the new shows and uh, what uh, what some people are saying about it. And, and it's a fairly substantive art article, but I don't know that it goes deep enough into some of the criticisms on the new 
iterations of the show. Um, it is, uh, I would say this is probably about, he's about, and this is my, my opinion, he's about 60% there. Uh, because he does talk about uh, some valid, you know, there are some valid criticisms, and he does have some uh, some reasonable uh, answers to some of the criticisms, and I don't agree with them, but okay, fine. Uh, and I want to get to this. I want to get to this one here. Uh, well, we can just go through a few of these. The first complaint that he lists in his article, New Trek does not honor Gene's vision. And I've heard this one. I don't know necessarily that... Uh, I don't know necessarily that this is a, a big complaint that I've heard among people who don't like the new stuff because Roddenberry's vision, for all of the optimism and the hope and the and the... Uh, the good wishes that uh, that were part of Star Trek. Star Trek was a Western. Star Trek was, you know, that whole wagon train to the stars thing, the cowboy diplomacy that we know Jim Kirk for. Uh, th this idea that you can have uh, this utopian society, uh, this egalitarian society. And we see this with, you know, Ahura being on the bridge and Sulu being on the bridge and then Chekhov shows up and you've got this, this multinational, uh, even, even aliens, all these multi-species crew and, and everybody gets along and okay, fine. But by the time you get to Star Trek, the next generation, when he's sitting there saying that humans are always going to get along in this mandate that he had in next generation, for people, you know, for humans to always get along, there is a complaint, and I've, I've even voiced this complaint myself, the fact that the next generation felt a lot more like Hotel Enterprise in that uh, none of the original crew, none of, none of the, the main ensemble cast... Uh, was given any conflict with each other. And all of the conflict came from outside. And, and I have said for a number of years that that wasn't very realistic. And then you get Deep Space Nine that comes across, and they actually do have characters that don't like each other and don't get along. And that gives you a foundation for growth. That gives you a foundation for development of characters and relationships in, in and among the cast of regulars and those stories are more interesting because if you have conflict from outside, then what's the point of having your main characters? If they're all going to sit there and get along and be bland and boring to each other, that's not interesting. And stories, drama, if we are, if we are telling stories, drama comes from conflict. Drama comes from different goals, goals in opposition to each other, schemes and plans that that work against each other. You have people that are uh, pe people that are trying to deter other people. That conflict comes from from the different aspects of what characters want or what they need. They might not necessarily want it, but it could be something that they need to have, whether it's a survival question. Or a, a, a status question, or a, a truth question, whatever that is, 
characters come into conflict and that creates drama. And for the next generation, all of the drama came from outside. And by the time you get to the point where Roddenberry is, is essentially a consultant on his own show, then you started to see a little bit more of those kinds of relationships that show up, you know, that, that there is friction and there is tension and that's reasonably more reliable as a storytelling motif. You, you don't, not everybody is going to get along, but I think uh, that the new stuff takes it too far. Uh, and, and we were talking about with uh, we were talking about with with Keith DeCandido earlier this uh, last week, and he's been on Deep Space Minds before, and we talked about it with Manny Cotto. The idea here that this new trek is pessimistic, some would say almost nihilistic in its tone, in its assumption that everybody is broken. And if that's your starting point, then you have a really deep hole that you have to dig yourself out of in terms of story. And I get the argument that first seasons are always rough, but you also consider that Star Trek's had a 50-plus year history of figuring this out. So you have a better chance with your starting point on a show now than you would have 20, 30, 40 years ago because now there is such a history, there is a foundation of continuity that you can draw from and it doesn't really feel like, despite the protestations to the contrary, it does not feel like the people who are running the, the current iterations of Star Trek are fans. They might be fans, but I'm not exactly sure what the what the under what their understanding of Star Trek is. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe this is maybe this is an, an interpretive question. Uh, it's, not, it's not yes, there was tension on TNG, Ensign Rowe, but again, Ensign Rowe was a guest character. She was a recurring character. She wasn't part of the main cast. Um, you know, and I, that conflict comes from the outside. It's somebody, you know, not in that core seven ensemble of, you know, cast of characters. It's from somebody else. It's from a situation elsewhere that happens to drop in onto the ship. You know, for, for everybody on the show, uh, you know, your main cast of characters, there is no conflict. Um, there was some tension between Riker and Troy because of their history, but that never really got explored until you started getting into the movies, and it wasn't really so much of a tension uh, past the point where they decided to ignore it. And then suddenly, when Troy and Worf started uh, being a thing, and there was no real conflict or tension or anything between Riker and Worf, there were opportunities there, but they didn't they didn't explore any of them. So it was uh, it was one of those things where again the Every every everything every problem every issue every conflict it always came from outside, or it came from the holodeck, and that's that's a whole nother bag of worms there. How many times the holodeck went haywire? Um, 
And yeah, crew relationships on original series were more realistic from a military perspective than on Discovery. I would agree with that. And uh, for another example of that, you look at Stargate. Uh, the tension that continued to exist between uh, Jack O'Neill and Sam Carter, where you know Carter Carter will not acknowledge her feelings for O'Neill. O'Neill won't acknowledge his feelings for Carter. Except in those weird circumstances where we're either in an alternate universe or a repeating timeline or something like that, uh, you don't have that acknowledgement because of, you know, the relationship goes against the rules. And there is an acknowledgement of the rules, and we're not going to admit how we feel about each other because that would be bad for morale. And it's a more realistic portrayal of those relationships. Now, I can't speak to what's been on Discovery because I haven't watched Discovery. I will I will be I will admit to being one of those people. I I tapped out in the first couple of episodes. I was done. This is not Star Trek for me. It might be a, it might be one of those situations kind of like Enterprise. When I first saw Enterprise, my initial reaction was it's decent science fiction but it's bad Star Trek. It was poorly executed Star Trek. And it wasn't until you get to the fourth season of Enterprise that it actually started to feel like a Star Trek show. Because, again, it goes back to the continuity, the foundation of continuity that this show has because of its longevity. And especially if you're going to do a prequel prequels have a completely different set of rules on top of what you would expect if you're playing in a particular sandbox that's already got established characters and stories and situations. For Enterprise being a prequel, you have to tell those stories knowing that at some point in the future we're going to be at spot X. We know where we end up. It's how we get there, but how we get there also has to recognize what's already there. And Discovery doesn't do that so much. Now, maybe in Season 2 it does. I don't know. Um, I, I need to watch it, I guess. Uh, I don't want to watch. See, that's the problem. You know, the and, and people say, you know, well, it's not for me. Okay, well, it's not for you. Don't watch it. But the thing is, I, I would like to be able to sit down and watch Star Trek and know that it's Star Trek and be able to enjoy it as Star Trek. And the people that are making Star Trek right now are making a show I don't enjoy. I don't feel any kind of burning desire or need to watch. And I also look at it as something I can't sit down and watch this with my son. I mean, he's 18. He's not a minor anymore. So some of the rules are a little bit different. But new Star Trek is not as family-friendly, let's say, as classic Trek. I can sit down with classic Trek with any episode of of. of original series or next generation or animated series or DS9 or, or Voyager or Enterprise. And I know as a parent, 
I don't have to worry about what's going to be in that show. That is not the case for Enterprise, or, or sorry, Discovery or Picard. And it's it's disappointing to me that uh, that you have this uh, situation where you don't feel like you can just sit down and pop in a Star Trek show and know that it's all going to be fine and dandy and and okay, whatever. So uh, the other argument. New Trek is science fantasy, not science fiction. Going back to the Tor.com article here. And I don't hear this complaint very much. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something. I, I have not heard too many people complaining about the technology. Now, the Spore Drive, yes. I've heard some complaints about that. I've heard some complaints about the fact that you've got those uh, high-tech, high-quality uh, hologram communication devices in Discovery when we didn't see them at all in any Trek prior. Uh, and, and yes, you get a little lampshading with it where, where Pike says, take it all out, I don't like it, it doesn't make, you know, it makes, it breaks the ship. But that's, again, it's, it's lampshading. It's looking at it and going, yes, we know we're wrong, but we're going to, with you know, a, a line of dialogue, we're going to acknowledge that we're wrong, but we're going to fix it. But it doesn't really fix it. It just highlights the, the continuity issue. But that's just me. I, I, I'm not sure that I've seen this complaint frequently enough. I could be looking in, in the wrong circles for this. But this idea of the technology in Star Trek being more fantasy, we've always had technology in Star Trek that is at best beyond our capability, at worst, you know, so, so uh, unrealistic that it would never happen. I mean... Warp drive might be a thing. Transporters might be a thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, Eric here is saying that, you know, he's comparing the complaints about the spore drive with the slingshot or uh, Q and all of these other super beings and the transporter and stuff. I'm not sure that he's got a valid argument here. Because space fantasy, uh, space fantasy really is Star Star Wars, not Star Trek. Star Trek is, at the very least, uh, science fiction in that it it makes the attempt to at least use some kind of technology to do a thing. Now, transporters are fantastical. Yes, transporters are unrealistic. We can't do it, but. There are tests. There are ways that people have figured out how it could work. So the scientific principles behind it are there. Now, we can't do it. It would require a great deal of power. And then, of course, you have the ethical question of whether or not you're actually killing someone and creating somebody new. But, you know, Q, Trelane... All of these different things where aliens exist, all of that is, okay, it's, they're aliens. That's, that's not fantasy. Creatures living on another planet, that's not fantasy. 
advanced super technology. That's not fantasy. That's I mean, look at Stranger in a Strange Land. By that by that same token, Stranger in a Strange Land could be considered space fantasy because because Michael does things with his mind. And it's magic. I don't I this this one this one he's refuting a complaint that I haven't heard very much as a complaint. And yes, these first two these first two complaints seem to be rather minor. Here's one here. <clears throat> the Kelvin films have no Star Trek soul. This one, I think, has a little bit more legitimacy as a complaint. And he says here, this is true from a certain point of view, of course. Now, if you're, in a, if you're doing an article in Star Trek... And you say this is true from a certain point of view. You're invoking Star Wars, which kind of seems impro- uh, appropriate when you're talking about the Kelvin universe, because J.J. Abrams was no fan of Star Trek when he made the Star Trek movies, and he has self-admitted to not being a Star Trek fan, to preferring Star Wars over Star Trek. So this whole thing here, uh, it is uh, you know he's he's. You know, rock'em sock'em robots, lasers, and you know, pew pew ray guns and 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 space battles. That's not what Star Trek is all about. Star Trek is not action adventure. Every single story, and let's blow up the ship. Every single story. That's that's tired. And as I've said in previous shows on various different occasions, J.J. Abrams is one of the most imitative filmmakers working in Hollywood these days. He is a copycat. He will take things from other stories, from other sources, and repurpose them. Uh, Best example, Super 8, is a Steven Spielberg movie. It's Close Encounters and E.T. You look at uh, his second one, Star Trek Into Darkness, which is essentially just a rehash of Star Trek 2, which is an infinitely superior film. And then you have here, but it, this is this is an interesting thing here, where and I need to look and see where he's where he's talking about it. But he mentions here in this article that Abrams was a fan of Trek, and that is not true. Abrams himself has said he was not a fan of Star Trek. So I don't know where he's getting this that Abrams was was familiar with the shows because he wasn't. He didn't watch Star Trek growing up. He said as much. All right, so then you've got this complaint. Discovery and Picard's writers are terrible. Okay. Reading from the article, quote, A massive swath of New Trek haters insist on the truth which they hold to be self-evident that the writers of Discovery and Picard are awful. While I have no doubt that their criticisms are sincere, I can't get this perception to square with reality, especially considering that Picard's showrunner, Michael Chabon, has won a Hugo, a Nebula, and a Pulitzer Prize for his work. That's kind of an amazing track record. Okay, in and of itself, objectively, maybe it is. But, also... Also consider the criticisms of late, over the last five, ten years, that the Hugo Awards are just a bunch of politically correct 
uh, uh, pats on the back, uh, mutual admiration society for being uh, politically progressive and, and woke and the stories aren't great. I, I don't know. That's the complaint. The complaint is that there are too much, uh, there's too much politics and, and identitarianism and identity politics and, and all that kind of thing, and that takes a priority over the story. If that's the case, and if Michael Chabon is one of those, then it doesn't necessarily make him a good writer. The fact that he's got a Hugo Award, the fact that he has a Nebula, the fact that he has a Pulitzer, I mean, let's look at, this, at, at the 1619 Project over at the New York Times, gets a Pulitzer Prize, but it's wrong. And historians have categorically pointed out in various places how it's wrong. And the New York Times won't back down on it, and they won't recant, they won't, they won't revise, they won't acknowledge the fact that the 1619 is nothing but a bunch of critical race theory propaganda. But it won't appeal to surprise, so I guess that makes it okay. See, the, invoking prizes, the fact that you've got somebody here who's won a Hugo and a Nebula and a Pulitzer, that means absolutely nothing. If those awards still have value, they have value to the people who pay attention to those awards, but they're, bra they're based on specific sets of criteria from the people who give those awards. And those, those people who give those awards are going to give those awards to people they like, whose work they like. That does not objectively make them good writers. And a good writer does not necessarily make you a good showrunner. Michael Chabon was brought in here to be a showrunner on Discovery. He's never done it before. That does not make you qualified to do things with Star Trek. I want to take you back all the way to the beginnings of Star Trek. 1963, 1964. Before, when the cage was... was in production, when they were writing scripts for the first season, after they got, you know, where no man has gone before, they commissioned the second pilot, they're, they're putting together the new season. There were a ton of stories from writers with awards. Theodore Sturgeon, Harlan Ellison. You have people who are established, respected, with awards, science fiction writers who were brought in to write episodes of Star Trek. And almost to a person, most of those scripts from highly respected science fiction authors, most of those scripts were rewritten by the likes of Gene Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana, Gene Kuhn, because being an, ex an, an excellent star, uh, science fiction writer does not necessarily mean you can write Star Trek. And it has to fit inside a particular set of parameters. And granted, we're in the first season, nothing's been produced yet, so nobody even knows what Star Trek is, except for the people that are making it. So I can understand things needing to be rewritten in order to fit the show. But you have people that are, have a track record. 
they have street cred, if it, if you will, in writing science fiction. That doesn't necessarily mean that they can write good Star Trek or Star Wars or you know fill in the blank with your with your favorite franchise. You know, just because you're a writer does not necessarily mean that you can write something within somebody else's IP. Take a look at Vonda McIntyre's The Crystal Star. It's a terrible Star Wars book. But if you take the Star Wars paint off, it's not a bad story. It's just terrible Star, Tra uh, Star Wars. You don't necessarily conflate Hugo and Nebula Award with good writer. Or, you know, just because you have this award in this one area does not mean that you have what it takes to do something in another area. And the, the criticism about the scripts have validity to them. I've seen clips, I've seen, I've seen articles, I've seen opinion pieces about the, the, the quality of the craft. And this doesn't go into uh, you know, whether, whether it's woke or not. That's a completely different argument, the different, a, different, a whole new set of criticisms. But the idea of the craft of writing, you go back to books like Robert McKee, Story. There is a way to craft a story so that it works from an entertainment standpoint, from a logic standpoint, from an internal logic standpoint. The story not only has to make sense to the, to the viewer or the reader, but the story also has to make sense to itself inside its own continuity. And if you have stories in, 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 in Discovery, if you have stories in Picard that violate that internal logic, that's bad writing, objectively bad writing. It's not about what story you're trying to tell. If you tell that story badly, that's bad writing. And that's what a lot of the criticism that I've seen there has been. That criticism is not... I don't like this story as much as it is. This story makes no sense. We see it now with, you know, the comparisons. You talk about the burn, for example. You have uh, ships that were using their dilithium crystals, and the dilithium crystals exploded. And what we see on screen is a bunch of ships that are sitting still. That internal logic does not line up. Because even Saru has said, well, we weren't, we weren't at warp when it happened, or whatever. It contradicts itself. And that's bad writing. Unless you can reconcile, if you, if you have a specific purpose for that contradiction, that you can reconcile later with a story plot point, that's one thing. But it's lazy writing to just make it up as you go. We saw that with the Star Wars uh, sequel trilogy. Making it up as you go, not having a plan, is idiotic. And if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't know where you're going with your plot, and you're all over whatever, and you say one thing over here, and you contradict yourself over here, and you're over here, over there, that's bad writing. 
objectively bad writing, whether you have a ton of awards or if your your first script. It has to make sense. It has to hold together both external logic from the viewer's reader's viewpoint and internal logic from the story continuity. And if it doesn't do that, it's bad writing. I don't care who you are. You could be Stephen King or Harlan Ellison or Isaac Asimov or fill in the blank, whoever. If the story doesn't make sense, it's a bad story. It's bad craft. That's why we have editors. That's why we have story editors. And it's why we have head writers and showrunners and people. But again, you get back to Discovery, they have a showrunner who's never done it before in the first season. Michael Chabon has no experience whatsoever being a showrunner for any kind of a series ever before. That's not who you put in charge of a Star Trek show. You put somebody in charge who knows both Star Trek and the business of making a television series. And then you get people in the writer's staff, in the writer's room, who know Star Trek, who know science fiction, who know storytelling, and they don't necessarily have to be completely immersed in just that genre. Uh, we were talking on the H two O podcast uh, Monday night. We we're talking about how do you how you introduce uh, n- n- the next generation, how you introduce science fiction and fantasy to the younger crowd, and get get new readers and get new get new viewers. And we were recommending various different titles. I think it's a good idea to to read the Horatio Hornblower series of books by C S Forrester. It's set in in the eighteen uh, hundreds, late late seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds. I can't remember exactly. But, you know, hornblowers in the British Navy. <coughs> Excuse me, but those are very heavily influential in Star Trek and the Honor Harrington books. It adds depth to your appreciation for those kinds of stories if you can if you can see what came before. And I'm perfectly fine. You want to fill a writer's room with people who know Shakespeare and know uh, soap operas and know uh, westerns and you know murder mysteries and thrillers and crime noir stuff and whatever, but they also have to know Star Trek. And your showrunner needs to have some experience in guiding that creative process into a show into a series. You have to keep track of all of these details throughout the season. How do you do that? Where are your resources? You know, Discovery needs a Gene Kuhn. And I don't think they have that right now. Mando Mark, hello in the chat. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Uh, Sci-Fi Snob says, fill in the blank is one of my favorites. Fill in the blank is going to be the name of my band. (laughs) At least this week will be the name of my band. I don't know, maybe. The, the, the contradictions in all of this, and, you know, he makes this point here, different is not necessarily terrible. I would agree. Different is not necessarily terrible. Terrible is terrible. And if your craft is objectively bad, 
and poorly executed, then it's terrible. And in a throwaway, he says here, quote, I will admit that season one of Discovery was a bit rough, largely because there were no characters to really root for. You have the grouchy Berman, uh, Burnham, the snobby Saru, the sarcastic Stamets, etc. But we gave TNG a couple of seasons to figure things out without burning it to the ground. Why not give Discovery the same chance? Okay, fine. We're into, we're, we're into season three now. And the show has essentially jettisoned everything that's come before by jumping ahead 950 years, starting from scratch. So everything they've done so far in Discovery, season one, season two, is likely not going to hold. Because season two was a lot of Captain Pike. And that was, I guess, maybe set up for Strange New Worlds. You have Pike and Spock, who are not even this show. So this show is not going to have Pike and Spock. It's not going to have the Enterprise. It's not going to have half, three-fourths of what came before. That's the problem. When you jettison everything, well, I think Batwoman's going to have this same problem. You spend an entire season with Ruby Rose as the character and you set up all of this stuff, all of this, all of this story continuity, and all of these arcs, and all of this, all of this material that now you can't do anything with because your lead character is changing. It's the same kind of thing. You're getting into season three of Discovery, and everything that's come before now doesn't quite matter as much. Now, yes, you could get away. You could still bring. You could do the spore drive. Fine. But there were a lot of people that were sitting there saying, okay, if you want to do this kind of technology, why not set Discovery ahead far into the future from the beginning? If you've got Discovery 930 years into the future past the next generation, then you don't have near as much continuity problem as you do by making it a prequel. Again, it goes back to craft. It goes back to having a showrunner who knows what he's doing. How much Discovery resembles the original idea that Brian Fuller has, we may not ever know. But I don't think that this current iteration of Discovery is what Brian Fuller had in mind. I'm guessing about that. But again, 30 years in media, I kind of maybe have some of this figured out a little bit. Next complaint, it's just not the same. Well, that's that's lame. Um, yeah, no, it's not the same. But he says here, in pop culture, you either learn to reinvent yourself or the franchise dies. Uh, I'm going to give him half point for this. Yes, you have to evolve. Yes, the storytelling has to adapt because your audience is going to change, your technology changes, 
the expectations of what kind of stories entertain us that changes we've saw we've we've seen that now several several different places where serialized storytelling evolves and you know now we're into uh, continuous story arcs as opposed to the episodic stuff. But on the same on the same front, we're going to get Strange New Worlds going back to that episodic format. So maybe that does, maybe that plays better. I don't know. We'll have to see if the show ever happens. Um, but yeah, you, you do run the risk, uh, uh, Snob has a point, you run the risk of changing what you have so much it's no longer recognizable as that thing it's supposed to be. Star Wars was was along those lines. Doctor Who, we we're hearing complaints about about that show. We're hearing complaints about the Kurtzman stuff with Trek. My complaint with the Star Trek uh, Kelvin timeline is not really so much that it was different, but it was. I go back to you know I I go back to the craft. It was bad writing. It was a bad story. And I've been told that Star Trek Beyond, the third Kelvin movie, feels more like Star Trek than the other two. Well, okay, but my answer to that is if it takes you three movies to get it figured out, then you shouldn't have been the one to make them in the first place. Because outside of certain performances in J.J. Trek, there's nothing there to interest me in watching another one. When I saw the first one, uh, the differences and the changes for the sake of change were so much and so great, and the story was so lame that I opted out. I have still, to this day, never seen Star Trek Into Darkness, and I have never seen Star Trek Beyond. I don't have any interest in it. Occasionally, I will have a a a a dusting of a glimmer of curiosity about Beyond, but it's not enough to motivate me to sit down and get a hold of it and say, "Okay, I'm going to watch this movie now." I don't have any interest. And when you create something and you change something to adapt to the times and you want to change something in order to appeal to a broader audience or a new audience, you run the risk of changing it to the point where you alienate the existing audience. And that's what Star Wars has done. That's what Doctor Who has done. That's what Star Trek has done. And that is a risk that you take when you make those creative decisions. And snob, I don't call myself a science fiction snob. You do. And that's perfectly fine. That label might work for you. By the way, Sci-Fi Snob has his own channel here on YouTube. Uh, so those of you who are interested, go check that out. Uh, it, is, uh, it is a question of adapting. And we've, we've talked about the fact that stories are, <coughs> excuse me, stories are products of their time. Godzilla came out of the fear uh, that uh, that Japan had following the the atom bombs being dropped on their on their cities. There are um, there are stories that come out of circumstances. There are stories that come out of what's going on in the real world, and they are products of their time. There are stories. 
1984 is is a good example of that. Brave New World is an example of that. Uh, Fahrenheit 451. You have stuff that comes out of the Cold War. You have stuff that comes out of the Vietnam era. They are, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, Joe Haldeman's The Forever War, for example. These are stories that are products of their time, but they are not limited to their time. They're not... They're not dated, I guess you could say. You look at some of the stuff in Picard, for example, some of the some of the slang uh, that is very, very, very much late 20th, early 21st century slang, stuff that people are probably not going to be saying two years from now, much less 200 years from now. Uh, what? Do totally red, yes. You know, pro tip. Uh, I think that's the one that got me the most out of out of Picard, is when uh, when Rafi says pro tip. I just wanted to punch her in the face because it was a dumb thing to say, and that's a writer thing. That is, uh, you know, again, that's you, you've got to read the room. You have to know your audience, but you also have to know your your material, and. Star Trek has established certain parameters for the way people interact and the way people talk. Uh, you could go back to look at Star Trek Four. The use of colorful metaphors. You know, they they made the distinction. It's just the way they talk here. Implying that's not the way we talk in the 23rd century. And, you know... It's one of the things I, I hear people talk like that and my estimation of them goes down just a little bit. I mean, you could certainly think of a more clever way to say things than relying on more colorful metaphors, shall we say? I don't know. It just slang I've I've never been a big slang user myself and now that mrs boss is out of the room i could say that her her use of the of the abbreviation lol and pronouncing it as the word lol makes my teeth grind <laughs> it does i hadn't gotten far enough away yet for you to admit this <laughs> that was that was kind of the point uh -huh. yes lol is not a word. L-O-L is not a word. It's an abbreviation. <laughs> Sci-Fi Snob says, dude, you are insulting us in the chat. Pro tip, don't do that. L-O-L. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's just one of those things like, well, okay, it's... It, people talk like that, but they're not going to talk like that 100 years from now, 200 years from now. I mean, people... Look at... Look at the look at H.G. Wells. Look at the stuff that's written written out of the Victorian era. They don't talk the same way we do now. The slang is different. the The phrases and the and the things that they say, a lot of it has fallen out of favor, fallen out of use. Nobody says these things anymore. Uh, you know, and and so it's it's one of those things where you need, as a writer, you need to be able to project forward but also not date yourself. I think one of the reasons why the, the 
original series holds up is because there's not any dated material there. Uh, there's no there's no real sense of uh, what kind of time this is this is being made. It doesn't feel like it's made in the '60s, except for maybe the the skirts and the go-go boots, but. From a story standpoint, it doesn't feel like it's been made in the 60s. Yes, there are stories that are, uh, you know, message episodes, you know, the Vietnam thing and the racism thing. But for all the people that complain, you know, that that make the case that Star Trek has always been political and they point to let that be your last battlefield. My answer to that is let that be your last battlefield is one of the worst most heavy-handed uh, episodes of the original series. Um, imagine Kirk talking like a hippie all the time. Exactly. Well, we did have the hippie episode, you know, The Way to Eden. Uh, but even then, those hippies in that episode were not behaving like the hippies of the 60s. They were behaving like the hippies of the 23rd century. There was a difference. There was a there was an extrapolation. What are they going to be talking and acting like 200 years from now as opposed to what they're like now? There is a difference. And for somebody, you know, with and I spent a little bit too much time on just the slang of of Picard, but it's it it goes back to lazy writing. It goes back to uh, not being, um, not being creative enough, maybe. I don't know. Uh, here's and and that goes into this next complaint. You know, new Trek uses curse words. Classic Trek did not. Some of it is, you know, the standards and practices of the time. You know, there are certain things that you could not say on on television in the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, but. When you sit there and drop an F-bomb in Picard or, or Discovery, it diminishes the show for me. Again, that goes back to uh, lowering an estimation of, of someone if that's, if that's your go-to. And I know Tim, Tim has made the point that it's almost punctuation for some people. And maybe, but I think... I like to think that we're better than that. And that goes back to the core of what Star Trek is. Star Trek assumes that we will be better then than we are now. And Discovery and Picard don't show that. Um... It, it's you know, this this darker, more pessimistic viewpoint of humanity, of where we are as 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 people, and that's my biggest complaint with it. The fact that it's that it is it it, it starts from the assumption that everybody is broken, that society is broken, that the Federation needs to be fixed in some some way, shape, or form. I don't buy that. I don't accept that as a valid premise in Star Trek. If you run across a society that is broken, it's usually a, an alien society. It's not the Federation. And I think that 
the politics of the era, uh, the modern day now, what's going on, has influenced and impacted all of these shows a little too much. Uh, I think, you know, when you get into Star Trek, the original series, there's one, two episodes maybe that are allegories for, for what was going on in Vietnam. Out of 79 episodes, it's not all of them. And I think that's a mistake that some of the, the, some of the new Trek makes is that the tone and the, the approach is too heavily influenced by what's going on right now. Um, whether it's politics or ideologies or society or social issues or whatever, there's, there's too much now in the Star Trek then. And I think that's a mistake. Um, uh, I, and Stop's got a good question. Are people using the same curse words now as they used 300 years ago? I don't know that they are. Um, maybe I, it would be interesting to see the, if anybody has done any research on that, but I would say, I would just assume not, but I, I haven't looked into it because I don't talk that way. And I don't, I don't expect Star Trek to talk that way. And it bothers me when Star Trek talks that way. Because Star Trek, uh, for the longest time, lived outside of that. It set itself apart. Now, you know, with, with Kelvin Track and Discovery and Picard, it's just another science fiction show. And it, and, it, and it looks and sounds just like everything else. It has become generic in its presentation of itself. It's not distinct. Star Trek has always been distinct. You look at, I'll give you an example, you look at the Orville. From the get-go, people looked at the Orville and said, that's a Star Trek show. Galaxy Quest, people looked at Galaxy Quest and said, that's a Star Trek show. The aesthetic was such that people clued into the fact that it was Star Trek related. It was a Star Trek type of thing. Nowadays, you look at this stuff, it doesn't feel like Star Trek. And CG, special effects, all that other stuff, you set that aside. You look at character, you look at story. You look at tone. Those three things. The new stuff doesn't match up to the old stuff in terms of quality, in terms of craft. Not what kinds of stories they're told. Not, not, not the actual substance of the stories themselves, but how they're being delivered to us. That is the issue with some people who are looking at this stuff and complaining and saying, that's not my Star Trek. It's not. For some people, it's not my Star Trek. For me, it's not my Star Trek. And if Strange New Worlds ever happens, maybe that'll be my Star Trek. But in the meantime, I have my Star Trek. It's the original series and the animated series and 
the movies, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Star Trek Two, Star Trek Three, Next Generation, Voyager, Enterprise, DS9. DS9 is an excellent series. I have my Star Trek. You can take yours. And, you know, if there are things you like about it, great. But the people that don't like it, they're allowed to have that opinion too. And, and, and that's more the issue than a lot of people are willing to admit. Is you have people that sit there and say, well, if you don't like it, then F you and go away and, you know, die of cancer or something. I mean, the insults that are hurled at people who don't like what's being made, that's as much of a turnoff as anything else. Be nice to each other. Show some respect to the people who don't like what you like. I think that's a critical component of this because, you know, for all of the the detractors over the years of Star Trek, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation is just is people people hated Star Trek The Next Generation before they before they got to see it. Well, nobody told them to go die in a fire because they didn't like Star Trek The Next Generation. There is a difference now. If you don't like my politics, don't buy my book. That kind of thing is so pervasive. And it creates problems where there shouldn't be. It creates friction where there shouldn't be. Friction and drama belong in the story. Not in the audience. All right, with that, I will leave you. Thanks very much for being here today. Those of you in the chat, thanks for being here and sharing your thoughts. And if you do have feedback that you'd like to share with us, the email address, live from the bunker at sci fi for me.com. And uh, go check us out over on BitChute and see if, uh, see if you like that any better. I don't know. We're getting a lot of traffic over there for whatever reason. I don't know why. I haven't, I haven't promoted it, but our performance numbers, our view counts are doing pretty solid over there. So I don't. No, it's just one of those things. I just, you know, I just roll with it. That's where it is. All right, don't forget, we do have a discount over at SuperheroStuff.com, 10% off when you use the promo code Sci-Fi for Me 10 when you check out. And we will have a new Ranker Pit tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, live here on Sci-Fi for Me TV. And then uh, Saturday morning, we've got Good Morning Multiverse, 10 a.m. Eastern, uh, with all of the week's news in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And I do think also this week is a week for foreign bodies. Mr. Harvey, Mrs. Walker, talking about horror from outside the United States. So that's coming up uh, this weekend as well. Uh, We hope you check that out, too. And that's going to be it for us today. Thanks very much for watching, everyone. And we will be back to do this all again live from the bunker next week right here on Sci-Fi For Me TV. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.